Known as the birthplace of the most popular musical group in the world, there's more to the city than fab sites. There's a dish that travels well and lots and lots of pirates. This week, we're in Liverpool, England. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. A port city that was infamous for trading slaves and launching pirate ships, Liverpool became a depressing industrial city that fell into disrepair during the second half of the 20th century. That is, until four lads took the world by storm, ignited Beatlemania, and made Liverpool famous. But before we dive into all things John, Paul, George, and Ringo, let's eat. What to eat? Hey, you gonna finish that? On Destination Eat Drink. There's more information about all things Liverpool at DestinationEatDrink.com, including all the places we talk about during the show, as well as lots of other places to go and things to do in this fab city. Plus, I'm always adding new places at DestinationEatDrink.com, so check back regularly. Liverpool is a port city, and ships have been traveling down the Mercy River into the Irish Sea, and then the Atlantic Ocean, and around the world for centuries. And the city reaped the profits of this trade during a shameful slave trading era in the 18th century. Liverpool was the second city of the British Empire during this time, behind only London. And ships left Liverpool for Africa, loaded slaves into the holds of the boats, and transported humans in bondage under unimaginable conditions to the New World. These same boats would unload slaves and fill the ships with raw materials from the New World, lumber, tobacco, cotton, and return to Liverpool flush with cash and the ingredients needed to keep this new industrial age humming with factories in northern England. But another thing that landed in Liverpool was lots and lots of sailors, and they needed sustenance. Scouse was the dish of choice among sailors in Liverpool. And scouse doesn't sound exactly appetizing. It's boiled salted meat, onions, peppers, and this thickening cracker that they would crumble in it called a hard tack or ship's biscuit. And I know it doesn't exactly sound appetizing, but think about it. These sailors would be out on ships for weeks and weeks or months at a time. So they needed something that would be filling and nutritious and also last on these long journeys. And Scouse fit the bill. So it was consumed by the gallon by sailors in Liverpool and at sea. Today, though, Scouse has undergone somewhat of a revival. While it's not exactly haute cuisine, new ingredients are being added, new methods are being used, and you can find Scouse all over Liverpool in pubs there. Maggie Mays is probably the best-known place to get a bowl of Scouse in Liverpool. They even package it. If you go into grocery stores throughout Liverpool, you'll see Maggie Mays Scouse 
sold there. And if the name Maggie Mays sounds familiar, the Beatles had a song called Maggie May on their album Let It Be. It wasn't a Beatles composition. It was a traditional folk song. And the Beatles were just messing around in the studio during the Let It Be sessions. And that song wound up on the album. It's a story of a prostitute who robs a sailor. See, I told you, there are sailors all over Liverpool, and there is a famous red light district in Liverpool as well. The best place for a bowl of scouse, in my opinion, though, is the Baltic Fleet. The good folks at the Baltic Fleet also brew their own beer, so they get lots of extra points for doing that. And the Baltic Fleet has a colorful history, to say the least. Downstairs, under the bar, there's two tunnels leading from the Baltic Fleet. One leads from Baltic Fleet out to the old red light district that I told you about earlier. The other one leads from the Baltic Fleet down to the docks where the ships were. Now, you can probably understand why that first tunnel was built to the red light district, but the second tunnel was built to the docks for a couple of very interesting reasons. The first one was to get illicit cargo to and from the ships. If you were carrying something illegal, you didn't want the authorities to see it, so you would go into these tunnels and scurry the uh, stuff off of the ships or onto the ships through these tunnels. Or you could be uh, hijacking human cargo to get onto these ships. Back in the day, the Royal Navy and some of these merchant ships were often understaffed. They needed more crew members, and they would go around to the prisons to get crew members onto these ships. The um, authorities were more than happy to get their criminals out of the jails, and the prisoners, many of them were um, at least happier to be on a ship where the conditions might be marginally better than in a Liverpool prison. So they would take these prisoners out of prison, put them on the ships. But that still wasn't enough people to work all of these ships. So here's what they would do. They would often force people to join the Navy or to join these merchant ships. And here's how they did it. It was called impressment. And these press gangs, these press gangs would roam the streets of Liverpool and force people into service in the Royal Navy or the Merchant Marines. It was kind of like a forced draft, these uh, press gangs. So they would run around, they'd grab people off the street and say, hey, you're in the Navy now, Bop, plop them on a boat. But another way that they would get these people to join would be to go into the bars and wait for folks to get too drunk, too inebriated to resist, and grab them there and then take them through this tunnel to the docks so no one had to see them grabbing incapacitated people and force them into servitude on these ships. And that's how they did it. Took them through these tunnels, put them on the ships. By the time the person sobered up and realized what had happened, too late. They're out to sea. What are you going to do? Swim back to shore? Probably not. You're in the Navy now. And one last thing about this dish called Scouse. Um, People in Liverpool are called Liverpudlians, you might have heard that term before, or called Scousers. And I always thought that that term was because they uh, had this thing called a Scouse accent. 
people from Liverpool, they'll say, oh, you have a Scouse accent. And uh, the Scouse accent's very distinctive. If you've ever heard interviews with John Lennon, Paul McCartney, any of those guys, that's what a Liverpool, that's what a Scouser accent sounds like. Um, they often elongate the vowels, like book becomes book, um, that type of thing. But the real reason they're called Scousers is because of all of the Scouse that they consume in the city. Want to drink? I'll have another on Destination Eat Drink. Subscribe to the Destination Eat Drink podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, or get it at radiomisfits.com. If you enjoy the podcast, do me a favor, rate and review it on iTunes. That way other folks can find the podcast. Liverpool also has a long tradition as a pirate enclave. But don't think Johnny Depp and Pirates of the Caribbean flying the Jolly Roger and Yo-Ho-Ho and all that stuff, uh, parrots on their shoulder. The pirates from Liverpool were often actually employed by the royal crown. They were employees of the king and queen of England. And here's what they would do. They would get on ships, they would fly the British flag, not the skull and crossbones, and they would aboard and attack ships from other countries that Britain was at war with at the time. And Britain fought a lot of wars in the 1700s and the 1600s. They were fighting Spain all the time over the conflict over who would control the New World. But there were also wars with France, with Holland, with just about everybody in Europe. And whoever the Brits were fighting at the time, these pirates would go out onto sea, would find their ships, they would board them, and they would take everything that they could. Spices from India and from China, ivory from Africa, cotton and tobacco from the New World. And they would take that for the British crown, loaded onto their boats, bye-bye, sink the other ship. Um, that's what these pirates would practice all the time in England. So it's only natural that we'd want a rum drink when we're in Liverpool. Pirates and rum, they go together. And Smuggler's Cove, which is right on Albert Dock, appropriately enough, is where you go to get a great rum drink. They've got a pirate theme in the bar, but it's not bartenders wearing eye patches and stuff like that. It's more looks like the interior cabin of a pirate ship. Lots of wood and chests and things like this. And they've got a room called the Rum Room, which is a great place to get a rum drink. And in fact, you've got so many rum drinks to choose from. Smuggler's Cove supposedly holds the record for the most different rum drinks on offer. So when in Liverpool, a bottle of rum. Things to do and places to see. I don't know. What do you want to do? On Destination Eat Drink. If you have a question or a comment about anything you've heard on the podcast, you can contact me on Facebook at Destination Eat Drink or on Twitter at Eat Destination or on the DestinationEatDrink.com website by clicking on the About and Contact tabs. 
If you're going to Liverpool, there must be a 99% chance that you're doing so because of four guys named John, Paul, George, and Ringo. All four of them were born in Liverpool, and each of their childhood homes is still standing in the city. In fact, Paul's house on Fourthland Road and John's, where he grew up on Menlove Avenue, his Aunt Mimi's house, are still standing and are owned by the National Trust and are available for tours. And you should definitely do these tours. John's House especially, many, many of the early Beatles songs were written in John's or in Paul's house. Uh, Paul's father loved music and liked having the boys over to play songs and to rehearse and to just mess around with the instruments. Uh, John's Aunt Mimi was less tolerant of the music, and so fewer of the songs were written uh, at Menlove Avenue, although um, I'll Get You, one of the early Beatles songs, was written at Menlove Avenue. George's house, uh, where he grew up, is still standing as well. It's a private residence, but you can go out in front and take a picture just be respectful when you do. Somebody lives here. This is a private home. It's it's not a it's it's not open to the public per se. Ringo's house, last time I went recently, the entire block was cordoned off. All the houses were boarded up, but this is actually good news because the first time I visited Liverpool, which is 25 years ago, uh, the first time I was there, there was talk that uh, this whole area was going to be demolished, including Ringo's childhood home, and they were going to put up uh, some commercial development. That never came to pass, and now what they're saying is that this area is going to be revitalized and Ringo's home will be preserved, which is as it should be. I mean, in my opinion, all four of these should be not only available for tours, but also museums. That's my biased opinion, of course, but good news that Ringo's house, uh, right now what they're saying is that it won't be torn down. The great thing about Liverpool is that John and Paul both wrote songs about real people and real places in Liverpool. So there's a lot more to see than just these houses where they grew up. Penny Lane, for example, is a real-life place in Liverpool. It's the song about the roundabout, and it's a bus stop. Basically, it's a bus terminal where Paul would catch buses to go to all different parts of the city. And the shelter in the middle of the roundabout from the song, that's still standing. It's still there, as is the barber shop. The barber who uh, has the has the picture of all the heads he's had the pleasure to have known. That's still there, um, as is the bank where the poor banker is teased by the children um, works. So all these places are still there, and you can visit them on Penny Lane. There's also a great photo op uh, of a sign that says Penny Lane on it, and that's a good place to stop to get your picture. And if you go onto my website, DestinationEatDrink.com, there's a video link to Paul's recent visit to Liverpool during a uh, carpool karaoke with James Corden of The Late Late Show. And he actually goes into that barbershop during carpool karaoke, and the people are undoubtedly and justifiably thrilled when he does so. He probably hasn't been there in 50 years or more. Paul also visits his childhood home and bangs out on the piano a little bit. So uh, that's worth looking up. Also, when you talk about uh, Penny Lane, it's forever linked with the other side of the 45 
Strawberry Fields Forever. Uh, that was John's masterpiece written in 1967. And Strawberry Field, also a real place. It was a Salvation Army home for children that opened in the 1930s. John's house was close by. He'd often jump the fence there and play at Strawberry Field. And the Salvation Army folks who were in charge of Strawberry Field took none too kindly to this interloper, and they went and told John's Aunt Mimi, who was raising him at the time, that if John ever came back, they'd hang him. And I always wondered what that song, what that lyric in Strawberry Fields meant, but now we know they'd hang him if he returned to Strawberry Field. Well, that's what the line, nothing to get hung about, comes from in Strawberry Fields Forever. Strawberry Field closed its doors in 2005. You can't go inside, but there's these wonderful gates that are painted red um, at the entrance of Strawberry Field. There's some graffiti on the walls that's often Beatle-related, like I am the walrus and, and things like that. And this is a great spot to get a picture. But the good news about Strawberry Field is that John's half-sister, Julia Baird, is now honorary president of the Strawberry Field Project. And there's now hope that the grounds will open to visitors in the near future, which would be fantastic. It would be uh, a, another boom for Liverpool because people would pay an admission to go inside. And it would be great for the tourists because you would get to go in and take pictures and see where John used to hang out at Strawberry Field. Another great pilgrimage spot in Liverpool is St. Peter's Church. This is the location where John and Paul met, the most famous rock and roll meeting in the history of the world. Imagine the scene, July 6th, 1957. John Lennon, 16 years old. He's riding on a flatbed towed around the garden of the church playing with his band, The Quarrymen. 15-year-old Paul McCartney is in the audience watching the band play. After they finish, Paul goes up to John. They talk. Paul shows John a few chords to supposedly 20-flight rock. And a few weeks later, Paul is now in The Quarrymen, and the most famous musical collaboration of the 20th century is born. But that's not the only reason to visit St. Peter's Church in Liverpool. There's also another historic landmark there. Next to the church is a little graveyard for uh, parishioners. And one of the markers in there is for one Eleanor Rigby. In 1966, on the Revolver album, Paul McCartney wrote a song called Eleanor Rigby. Beatles released it. It became very famous. Paul was asked about Eleanor Rigby, and he said, oh, I just made it up. Years later, someone pointed out to Paul that there was an actual tombstone in Liverpool at the church where he met John for Eleanor Rigby. It had been there for decades. Well, Paul said, I must have subconsciously taken that into my brain and written a song about it. He could have never known Eleanor Rigby. She died before he was born. But the Eleanor Rigby gravesite is in Liverpool at St. Peter's Church. And speaking of Eleanor Rigby, there was a uh, 50s rock and roll heartthrob named Tommy Steele. He was kind of an Elvis ripoff, kind of an Elvis light in England in the 1950s. He later became a sculptor, and he made a statue called Eleanor Rigby, All the Lonely People. 
This is on display. It's not on display at the church. It's on display on Stanley Street in Liverpool. The most famous rock and roll club in the world is in Liverpool. It's the Cavern Club on Matthew Street. It was originally just a basement for a fruit warehouse and later became a jazz club in the 1950s. John Lennon first played there with his band The Quarrymen, and later the Beatles would eventually play almost 300 shows in this sweaty, poorly ventilated cavern club. Visiting the cavern is like a pilgrimage for Beatles fans. Admission's free during the day. There's sometimes a small fee to enter at night. Going down these claustrophobic steps, I just always think about an afternoon concert with John, Paul, George, and Pete Best on drums playing to ecstatic crowds in this little tiny space with water condensation going down the walls, barely being able to breathe because it's so hot inside. This is the place where Beatlemania was born over 50 years ago. Also on Matthew Street, there's lots of places that sell cheap tchotchkes and all kinds of fun little trinkets with John Paul George and Ringo's faces or names on it. But there are legitimate places where the Beatles hung out on Matthew Street as well. Another famous spot is called Grapes. If you know anything about uh, Beatles history, you know that Beatles used to hang out here before or after their cavern gigs. And if you go inside, there's lots of pictures on the wall of the Fab Four and pictures of the Beatles' first drummer, Pete Best, as well, who played many, many shows with the Beatles at the Cavern Club. But the Cavern Club isn't the only musical club that has a famous Beatle connection. The other one is called the Casbah Coffee Club. And I told you about Pete Best, who was the original Beatles drummer. He was later fired in favor of Ringo. But his mother, Mona Best, opened up this small club, which was originally in the uh, coal cellar of her house. Coal cellar was a place where all the coal was stored. And uh, in the wintertime in northern England, they would burn coal to keep the house warm. Well, her coal cellar, they cleaned it out and they made a club called the Casbah Coffee Club. And they would have teenage groups play. And this was before the Cavern Club days. This was even before the Beatle days. This was when John had his band called The Quarrymen. John was in the band. Paul was in the band. This was even before Pete Best was on drums. Pete was on a completely different band called, uh, in a completely different band called The Blackjacks. Well, when they were getting the Casbah Coffee House, Coffee Club open, um, they had to paint the inside. And the agreement was if John and the rest of the Quarrymen would paint the cellar, they would be allowed to play at the Casbah Coffee Club. Well, they agreed. John brought along his girlfriend at the time, later to be his first wife, Cynthia, and Cynthia painted on the wall a silhouette of a young John Lennon. Well, that painting is still on the wall of the Casbah Coffee Club. You can visit the Casbah Coffee Club. They only take visitors by appointment only. It costs about 20 bucks per person to get in, but you can actually see the spot where before they were the Beatles, they were the quarrymen, John and Paul playing together, sometimes George too, in this little club called the Casbah Coffee Club. Tips and inside information on Destination Eat and Drink. 
Thanks for being here for Destination Eat Drink, the podcast. I'm Brent Peterson, and in addition to hosting this podcast, I also write fiction. My novel, Truffle Hunt, and my collection of short stories, That Bird, are both available at Amazon.com or go to DestinationEatDrink.com, click on the About tab for more about my books. The Beatles are a big part of the Liverpool economy, and of course, there's lots of ways to see the sites. I don't recommend stringing it together and trying to do all the sites yourself. Parking's not easy in Liverpool. Finding the sites um, can be a bit of a hassle, and I hate driving in England because you're on the left-hand side of the road, which to me is extremely stress-inducing. Instead, I say take a tour, um, a short tour of two hours that hits most of the Beatle hotspots, including photo ops at Penny Lane, Strawberry Fields, Paul and George's childhood homes, and some other sites, is the Magical Mystery Tour. Um, This fun tour departs Albert Dock, and it only costs about $25 U.S. It's only two hours long, so if you're short on time, this is the way to go. If you really are serious about seeing as many Beatles sites as possible, a more comprehensive tour is the full-day Fab Four taxi tour. Um, That costs $150 plus an additional $20 for entry to the Casbah, which might seem pricey, but keep this in mind. In the taxi, you can fit five people. So if you can get a group together, this is the way to go. Uh, You get all the people together that you know, (laughs) go on a trip to Liverpool, or maybe you just pick up some folks in Liverpool who also want to do the taxi. But anyway, five people divided by 150, that's $30 per person, plus $20 entry, $50 total, that's U.S. dollars, for a uh, full-day Beatle tour is pretty much worth it in my book. Getting to Liverpool is not that easy. There's no direct flights from the U.S. to John Lennon International Airport in Liverpool. The best way to do it is to start in London. Um, There's a bunch of Beatles sites there, of course. There's uh, Abbey Road, Uh, If you go to Abbey Road, you can go to The Crossing, where the Beatles shot their iconic album cover, Abbey Road, in 1969. Um, You can also see the Abbey Road studios, but it is a working studio. They will not let you in, and they unfortunately don't give tours. I don't know why. A lot of these famous recording studios give tours at special times. Abbey Road does not, although you can take a picture from outside the gate. The best way to get to uh, Liverpool from London, in my opinion, is by train. It takes about three hours to get there. There's no direct flights from London to Liverpool, so even if you wanted to do a flight, you couldn't. But even if a flight was available, I would still recommend taking the train, and that's because of my personal four-hour rule. And that rule states that any bus or train ride of four hours or less is preferable to taking a plane. Here's why. When you factor in all the time that's required, think about it. Airports are always outside the center of town. So you have to factor in the time to get from wherever you are in the city to the airport. That can take anywhere up to an hour. Then you have to get to the airport at least an hour, probably two hours in advance. So now you're three hours in. Then you have to board the plane and all that jazz, and then you've got a one-hour flight. So now 
you're up to four hours. Then you have to deplane, maybe get your baggage at baggage claim, and travel to the city center. Um, with from a taxi or a bus or whatever, that could be another hour. So now you're into five hours. What you thought was a one hour trip actually takes you five hours. Whereas you can get from London to Liverpool in three hours and the bus and the train, they're almost always right in the center of town, which makes transportation once you get there so much easier because your hotel, your Airbnb or whatever is undoubtedly closer to the train or bus station than it would be to the airport. Liverpool is a great place to visit. I usually don't spend a lot of time there. I would say two days is uh, you know, probably the minimum amount of time that you want to spend in Liverpool. I've done it in one day, but that's just doing a quick hit of a quick Beatles tour and leaving. Uh, usually when I go there, I'll spend three days or four days, depending. But you can definitely do Liverpool in two days. And the nice thing about a trip to Liverpool is that you can make it part of a larger vacation, and you really should. You can fly into London, do so much in London. We'll do a London episode later on. Then you go to Liverpool, spend a couple of days there. From there, you can go to Scotland. Glasgow and Edinburgh aren't far. Or my recommendation is you grab the scenic train from Liverpool to Hollyhead in Wales. You go west into Wales, and then you can jump the ferry to Dublin, which will have to be another episode of Destination Eat Drink. That's going to do it for this edition of the podcast. We drop a new show each and every Friday. Next week, we're visiting the south of Spain, but not where you think. I guarantee it. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by Ed Silla and is a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. I'll talk to you next week. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.